Well, we have been so blessed this morning already, haven't we? It's just uh, just been a real pleasure to be worshiping uh, here. And I remember when I was a, a quite a bit younger, a uh, preacher came and he was having children's class with the children. This little David play on your heart reminded me of that. And uh, the preacher asked one of the, asked the children, "Now, how did David kill Goliath?" And this little boy, he was just a little squirt, maybe four, three or four. And he had some bigger brothers or uncles that that influenced his life probably a little negatively. And uh, he answers and he says, Mitten Bix. Now, I can tell some people understand Dutch here. That means with a gun. And uh, the preacher didn't understand Dutch. And so he said it several times, Mitten Bix. Anyways. or he shot him. Well, so they, they had to straighten that out. Um, and now we all know how that all worked out. That was, that was beautiful singing. I really appreciate it. This morning, um, I'd like to share with you out of Mark chapter 14 and 15. <clears throat> now, as you all know, Mark is a fast-moving book. You get in the Jordan there pretty much, and then you, first thing you know, you're 315, and you land into chapter one of Luke, Um, and it's just action-packed, many things happening, uh, and compressed as well. I was reading this uh, account here recently, my devotions, and then I got an email or text from Dan asking me if I'd share a message, and these thoughts were on my mind. Um, So I'm going to share, like to share from here, thinking also of Easter coming up. And, uh, and trying to become contemplative about the Easter, Easter season, which is a favorite time of the year for me, and I hope it is, I trust it is for most of us, <clears throat> or all of us. So I'd like to read just verse uh, 72 of chapter 14. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Before it crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. I I was impressed with that thought there. When he thought thereon, he wept. And then moving over to 15. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired, and there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made an insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them, 
And Pilate answered and saying again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. I'd just like to go back and look through this uh, passage. Um, so we have here this man named Bar Abbas, if you would put it that way. His first name meant son of Bar, and then Abbas, son of the father. Thinking, you think of Abba, father, like it talks about in Romans 8. This would be that connotation. So he's son of the father. Um, and then you have Jesus, and they're both there in this crucifixion scene. Jesus is delivered to Pilate very early in the morning. The chief priest with the elders, the teacher of the law, the Sanhedrin, they're together. Um, of course, Judas had delivered him over to them the night before, betrayed Jesus to them the night before. The Jews have their sort of kangaroo court, you might say, concerning Jesus. And uh, there's all these accusations thrown at him. Uh, if we read in Mark 14, 55 through uh, 65, I'll be picking some parts out of those verses. It says they were looking for evidence against him so that they could put him to death. They were trying to find a piece of evidence so that they could put him to death. But it says they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. That seems unusual to me. So how, do, how does this all work? It would have seemed like if one man would have said, yeah, he did this, and another one would have joined in and said, yeah, it was like this, and the, you know, the court was on their side, it was already bought. Why wouldn't their statements add it up? I, just, I think it just goes to show how much confusion was going on in, the, in that court. Um, then someone got up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, he will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. It says, yet even there their testimony didn't agree. So finally the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you going to answer? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now this is getting really direct now, okay? They're getting down to the point and... It doesn't call, this calls for a direct response. And Jesus says, I am. He didn't say, maybe, he didn't say, you know, I could be, or just watch and see. He says, I am. There's no doubt about that. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's unequivocal, you know, there's, there's no mistaking what Jesus is saying here. I am, I'm going to come in the clouds at the right hand of the mighty one. And that's where the high priest 
lost it. He tore his clothes, need any more witness, and they went from there. They called it blasphemy. They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then they began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy, and, and so forth, and then take him and deliver him. And that's where we enter into the count in Mark 15. So now we're back here, and uh, Pilate's asking him in Mark 15, verse 2, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Um, here Jesus seems to give a qualified yes. Uh, in other words, that's what you've said. Uh, that's what I am. But there's a, a note of, of uh, maybe not exactly being joint in, their, in what they're both thinking when they think of a king. It, it's obvious that Pilate wasn't too worried about Jesus' response here. Uh, the affirmation that Jesus gave didn't make Pilate think that Jesus was some sort of credible threat to his command or to the Roman Empire. But Jesus was king of the Jews. He gives this qualified yes. There's a couple of verses from John's record here that I'd like to add in. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, then would my servants fight? that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from hence. And 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am king. To this end was I born, for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So it would give the thought there that he is king of all that are hearing the truth, Right? He is king of all that follow him in spirit and in truth. And he was the father of Abraham. He was, so there's a kingship there, and yet it's not as tangible as what, as that, that Pilate could really settle in on it and get a hold of something. The chief priest accused him of many things. Their, their accusers turned up the heat. They, they, they said that Jesus incited the people to riot. They told him not to pay their taxes, which is an untruth. That he fancied himself a king in political opposition to Rome. But Pilate was unconvinced. And so they, they kept on stirring up the people and strengthened their charge. Um, they say, you know, in Luke 23, verse 5, it says he stirs up the he stirs up the people with teaching throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee. Um, Pilate's just not convinced about it. He's not buying it. Um, but it says in John 19:15, they cried out all the more, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And he's, Pilate answers, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answers, answered this very chilling, gave this really very chilling response. We have no king but Caesar. And I find this interesting. Uh, the chief priests, the elders, Sanhedrin, these leaders that were bringing Jesus to trial were in a sense brought to trial themselves. They had to answer specifically where their allegiance was. And they did. 
we have no king but Caesar. And that to me is chilling and it's, uh, it's frightening. So again, Pilate asks him, <clears throat> aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. That's in Mark 15:5, And Pilate was amazed. So Jesus is standing here. Pilate is judging him. And I'm, I'm assuming, we could assume that Pilate had seen almost every kind of response. From outrage to, to groveling on the floor for mercy. Uh, from a measured response to loss of control from the defendant. But here was Jesus, he's, there's something about him. I think it's his dignity, his, his calmness, his heavenly certitude, his fearlessness that's not accompanied by a brashness, just, just a fearlessness in, in, in the face of this incredible pressure. But especially the heavenly certitude. He, he knew who he was. He knew why he was there. And I, I think that Pilate probably started wondering if maybe he had lost even control of the situation in the, in the presence of Jesus. <clears throat> you know, like, I'm supposed to be judging this man, but somewhere or other, uh, it's not fitting together, you know. Um, Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, verse 6. Now it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner from whom the people requested. And this seems to me, as I looked at that, as a, as a kind of legal way forward for, for Pilate. Uh, the most credible accusation against Christ is, making, is that one of him making himself out to be king of the Jews, or what the Jews made him out to be. Um, what I find ironic is, is here that the Jews had brought Jesus to Pilate. And it wasn't but, you know, some 33 or less years earlier that Herod was on Jesus' tail. He was wanting to kill Jesus. He had many, many, many children killed to try to find Jesus, Hebrew, Hebrew boys. And here now Jesus was in front of Pilate. And Pilate's trying to defend Jesus in the face of these uh, of these uh, Jewish accusers. And so now we enter Barabbas. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So here we have a legit criminal, right? It's no doubt. He's in prison with some other state criminals. And today we'd call him a terrorist. He's Definitely a bad man. He committed murder, was involved in an uprising, probably the leader of them, or one of the leaders. By definition of his crime, he was a violent enemy to the state, insurrectionist, um, a disturber. So the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And that was to release one prisoner during the time of the Passover. And so Pilate takes this chance. And he says, do you want me to, shall I, shall I release to you the king of the Jews? How about I do that? And because he knew it was of self-interest, like it said in verse 10, that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. 
Uh, Pilate wasn't a friend of the Jews, and they weren't friends of his. He represented, Pilate represented imperial Rome, which was a natural enemy to the Jews, to the Jewish state. And uh, Pilate saw the Jews as an obstinate and, and troublesome group of people. Um, they were difficult to govern. I don't think there was any love lost between Pilate and these Jewish leaders. Um, and it seems like he, he saw right through the Jewish, uh, the, the hierarchies, the chief priests' visceral attacks as, as that of just being a, jealous, a jealousy issue. And he was, he was trying to turn this thing, not making him out to be a hero. He wasn't. I'm just saying there, I think he did it all out of selfish motives. He did, but he just didn't want, I don't think he wanted the, from reading this account, that he wanted this to move forward, this crucifixion of Jesus. I think it irritated, him, irritated Pilate that he was put on the spot this way. You know, here he had all these maybe a couple million male um, Jews there in Jerusalem. And it was just a volatile situation. You know, if, uh, for the Passover, many, many people were there. And so if this thing went the wrong direction, who knows what could come out of it. And then he'd have to answer to Rome for it. And I think he was irritated him. It was pushed onto him like that. And then we think, too, of his wife. He, she had warned him, uh, don't have anything to do with this. And I also wonder, you know, it seems to me, at, at, like I would mentioned at that point, there was a point there that he realized that he was judging a greater than himself. And it says he didn't see any fault in Jesus. So it seems like maybe his logic was, you know, if I could just release Jesus, okay, a charge was brought against him. I don't think it's legit, but I could say it was legit. That would pacify the chief priest. And they could say, well, Jesus was guilty, but Pilate just went and released him. And, you know, we could all get out of this thing, uh, patch things up and get out of this thing, and they could go on with their Passover, and we could have, you know, I could have Jesus scourged and so forth, and kind of pacify or appease the, the, their desire for, for punishment on Jesus. But it, it didn't work. Um, there was no diffusing the situation. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released, to have Pilate release Bar Barabbas instead. And, it, you know, my mind goes along these lines here hey, like this. You know, they're, they're shouting, hey, Pilate, Forget releasing Jesus. We want Barabbas. And, you know, we'll take the terrorist. We'll take a murderer. We'll take a robber. We'll take a thief, uh, a criminal, whatever. Just don't release Jesus. In a sense, they're saying, we'll take the devil we know. We'll take the person we can deal with. We're tired of our world being upside down by this Christ. Crucify him and get him out of here. He's not a person we can deal with. And, uh, you know, never mind that Jesus Christ had healed the sick. He had restored sight to the blind. He had raised the dead. Never mind that this man in front of them on trial had calmed the troubled sea. Never mind that this man had miraculously fed thousands with just a bit of fish and, and bit of bread. 
Never mind the healing of the demoniac, Gadarene, you know. Never mind all those things. We can't deal with him. Crucify him. Get, get him out of here. So then Pilate asked him, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Well, we went over that. He asked them, what crime has he committed? And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You know, I think in the back of these chief priest's memories, minds were memories that went along like this. A young man opening up scripture to them in a way that they uh, found inconvenient. A man that had called them out for their misuse of the temple and their greed and who had single-handedly cleansed up things there. At least one year. A man who was more concerned about his father's business than he was with the washing of his hands or the splitting of legal hairs. A man that seemingly understood their, this was uncanny, I believe, to them, their very thoughts. You know, they would get so wise, and he would just figure them out, just come right in on them. And he gave them answers that confounded even their wisest, that made them be quiet. A man that skirted every trap they laid for him. They put the traps out there, and he just skirted them. In fact, he turned them on them. A man that exposed their hypocrisy for what it really was. You know, the cost to them was just too great to have this man around. It was just too great. And I believe God had brought these people, this Jewish hierarchy, to a point of decision. And when they were brought to this point of decision, they took the devil they knew over the Christ they couldn't deal with. And they clamored, crucify him. A horrific, a terrible clamor, an awful and unmerited punishment for righteous men. Or was it? I want to look at that a little bit. The call of Christ wasn't benign. It wasn't a wear my t-shirt hat, my t-shirt and my hat, you know, sort of call. Um, You know, um, go out there and and, uh, tell my name to everyone and tell them to vote for me. It wasn't that sort of political call. It was a call of repentance, a call of self-denial, the call of submission, a very different call. Jesus would never break the bruised reed. That's what it says in Isaiah. His mission was was and still is to heal. In Hebrews 7.25, it says he's, he's able also to heal them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And that, to me, means that Jesus Christ is is about healing, and healing completely. Not just a band-aid, but healing completely. There are times, and I'm changing the train of thought here just a bit, but you'll see where I'm going. There are times in our lives that we believe that maybe Christ is just breaking us. We wonder, why is this happening to us? We thought we were supposed to be blessed, you know, and, and, uh, and we're just getting broken. Well, Christ heals and heals completely. Um, He conforms us into his image. He crushes the will of his children, of those who truly desire to follow him. And he conforms that will into his image. 
He'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. So this, this call that Jesus gave, you know, was a call of submission to those Jewish leaders, just like it is to us. And it's a, it's a high call. Um, Jesus saw right down into the heart of that rich young ruler, and he saw that love that he had for his money, his wealth. He saw the dependency he had on that. And he said, you know, it's, it's, if you want to follow me, you've got to let that go. And he can still do that to us, and he still does. You know, he, he find, looks into our hearts and sees where those idols are, and he, he still crushes those and takes those out. We had, we're brought to a point of decision. Hebrews 12.6, <clears throat> For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he, is he whom the Lord chasteneth not? You know, if we're not chastened, if we're not disciplined, if we don't do that to our children, there's evidence there, contrary to what we hear in the news today, and are taught today in, you know, in the public sphere, contrary to that, there's, there's, a, there's a sign that there's really not love if there's no chastening, if there's no discipline. And, and that's the Lord loves his sons and his daughters and he chastens them. And I believe that's the, the taking of that, of the will of his sons and daughters and, and moving them, molding them, them into this father's image. Again, it tends to be much easier to serve what we can reckon with than to serve the one who sees into the heart. The one who sees all these impurities and all the little maybe idols or dependencies we have in our hearts. And the crowd still shout when, they, when they're brought face to face with that. They still shout, crucify him, I believe. When they, especially when they grasp the significance of Christ's claim in their lives, they still shout crucify him. There's still a preference to try to pacify the terrorist over the submission to the claims of the true son of the, of the father, the true son of God, on their or our lives. Back here again, Mark fifteen fifteen. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas unto them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Barabbas, the not true son of the father, and interestingly in the oldest manuscripts, Barabbas' name is actually Jesus Barabbas, but it seems like some of the later... Um, Translators found that very offensive and moved that Jesus off of there. But if you think about it, Jesus, the Son of the Father, and Christ, the Son of the Father, it is, it's an interesting thing to note. Now, I don't know that it has any high significance, but it's, uh, it's just there. Anyways, the not true Son of the Father, or the Heavenly Father, he got a free pass. Um, tradition has it that Barabbas attended the crucifixion. I like to think he did. 
And it's, but it's hard for me to grasp all the conflicting thoughts and questions that it must have been going through this man's, this criminal's mind. You know, maybe he thought, how did I manage to get a free pass? How did that happen? I thought I was toast, and here I am. I'm free. Um, this man's a bigger criminal than me. How can that be? You know, um, why all this hate for this other Jesus? Or for this other man. It's possible that Barabbas may have even thought, I should have been up there. It should have been me up there writhing in agony. It should have been me enduring the spitting, the flogging. The crown of thorns and the carrying of the cross up that road between those, that jeering crowd, that jeering, mocking, cruel crowd. This Jesus took my place. And I hope he thought that. I don't know. We hope so, though. So as we move on towards the Easter season, there's a few thoughts that I'd like to, especially with you this morning. This account is real. This scene out of taken out of the crucifixion is real. There are many other scenes that are so interesting and, and that uh, are there for our benefit and for us to wonder about and contemplate um, but the account that we're living right now, that you and I are living right now, is real as well. In fact, we all have an account with the true Jesus Barabbas. We all have an account with him. So there's a few things I'd look, like to look at here. One is the opposition to Jesus. Reflective thoughts. The Sanhedrin's ruthless and untruthful search evidence against Christ to use to put him to death. It's amazing. But I think it's very similar to the same efforts that are used today to delegitimize. Make Christ look like something less than he really is. To knock him down, to chip away at his stature, to bring him lower. Um, I think that's the very same tactic. Find some sort of evidence and try to make something stick, even if it isn't true. On a personal level, we face the same temptation. The demands of Christ go counter to our will, my will, what I want to do. We may not take Christ to trial, but neither do we step into the cross life. We're kind of like out in this no man's zone. Um, and you know, we distance ourselves, and maybe we find it, you know, a reason that even that the cost of this submission is just not reasonable. And so we, we kind of, you know, delegitimize Christ. And, and that will eventually bear fruit. On the other hand, if we're truly children of Christ, we'll face the cost. We'll count the cost and we'll carry through. And Christ will find those areas of idolatry or strongholds in our lives. He'll find those areas where we need growth. And in turn, he'll send us a spouse or children or life circumstances or maybe even hardships to grow us in those areas. Now, I'm not, you know, I love my spouse and love my children, but I'm just saying that God will bring these things into your lives. It, 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 it's going to be life circumstances. Um, and he will grow us. Um, he may even 
use the Abraham lesson on us. He may take us away from what we're familiar with, what we depend on to bring us into a closer dependency on him. Another point I'd like for us to ponder is Pilate's inclination towards expediency. Pilate was known to be a wily leader. In this situation, though, you could say that the cards he was dealt were a mess. He just didn't have a good way forward. He was faced by plotting in a raucous, well, he's a plotting and designing leader of the Jews, leaders of the Jews. He was, he was faced with them face to face. I don't think they really liked how this all turned out. They really didn't want uh, this day to turn out like this. They wanted to be able to take Jesus quietly and kill him. But because of how things work together, uh, and that's a whole other uh, message in itself, here they were faced with bringing Jesus to, to trial in front of, right, right up in front of the Passover season. Or right in the Passover season. And then he had this raucous and bloodthirsty crowd calling. There really wasn't a, a time for, for this thing just to play out normally. He had an unlikely criminal on his docket. No solid evidence from his accusers. And then his only way forward is thwarted by a common crowd being by the common crowd being swayed um, by these uh, plotting leaders, by the Jewish hierarchy. And and this morning, I want you to know I'm not anti-Semitism, not at all. These 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 this is not against the Jews. This is against this is the mankind revolting against Christ. Um, so here he has this Jewish hierarchy and, and they're, they're upset and uh, they've plotted this thing out and they sway the crowd and it's just crucify him, crucify him and I think it finally gets to the point where Pilate can't get a word in edgewise it's just crucify him and finally Pilate caves he says crucify him I wash my hands of this whole mess you know, this whole logic of expediency is still very much alive and well today. It's well on a national level, it's well on a local level, and it's well on a personal level. It goes the lines of, of this, now isn't the right time. Um, it's really not that serious. I'll deal with it later. You know, kind of just like my plan of dealing with my getting rid of my extra 10 pounds later. Um, you know, I'll, it's, well, it's, a, it's something we can take care of another time. Let's just, let's not make a big deal. Um, well, there's a certain sense of truth in, in that and being wise. But when Christ calls us to decision, when Christ calls us to discipleship, um, there's never a better time to answer his call than just to do it right away. Um, the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit brings us to the point of decision as we move through life. 
And let's be very, very careful not to pattern or make our lives a pattern of expediency. Our decisions will be will you know begin culminating into a product. And I, I, I'll tell you that a product of expediency will only be a disappointment and it won't stand the test of fire. Um, that, is, that is something I think we should be very careful about. And then the beautiful assertions of Christ. Uh, beautiful is not a strong enough word, but I can't think of another one right now. I am the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. It's an unequivocal statement. But then Jesus follows up. You'll see me sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming in the clouds of heaven. You'll see me sitting. All I can say is amen to that. And even so come Lord Jesus. It's so beautiful. Of course, this was the clincher the high priest needed. It was the blasphemy statement. And he was consternated about it. Tore his clothes. Messiah. Let's look at that, that statement. Messiah meaning the blessed one. Son of the blessed one. Son of God. Sitting at the right hand of God. And by the way, if you recall, Stephen saw this. He saw Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. Remember that? You know, when Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, it means that he's co-equal with the Father. There's a relation, a co-equal relationship there. And I'm not going to go into trying Godhead, but there's just, you know, oneness. There's a completeness there. Uh, servants would stand at attention, but not Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, right there. There's a familiarity. Coming in the clouds of heaven, how startling is that? I'm sorry, but that's not something that even the most well-equipped Antichrist will be able to face. Well, I'm not sorry. You know, that's, that's wonderful. The most well-equipped Antichrist will not be able to face the one coming in the clouds of heaven. No nuclear force, no tanks, no anything will be able to stop the Christ coming, riding on the horse, white horse. Let that sink into our beings this Easter season. And then we have this guy named Barabbas. And I'll, this is the last contemplative uh, point that I'd like to share. He's the guy that we can all identify with. He was rebellious. He hated authority. He actively pushed against it. Think of Paul or Saul. He kicked against the pricks. You know, we as mankind are just a pretty rebellious bunch of people. We were born into sin. We turned against God. All men have gone astray, like Isaiah says, turned everyone to his own way. Barabbas was under, he was, he was convicted. He was condemned. Same, same with us. I don't need to say more about that. A truly amazing turn of event provided Barabbas a pardon. Again, same with us. The innocent, the innocent man was given the sentence of Barabbas. 
Does that sound familiar to you? Barabbas was most likely clueless to what all had transpired in those truly fateful hours. Isn't that kind of the same way for us? We're kind of clueless, I think. We kind of live a clueless life. Not really, at least I do, not really under uh, realizing the, the redemption that we've been so freely given. Not really living it like we should often. And here I'll take some liberty. Again, I, I like to think that Barabbas went to the cross. I like to think he contemplated on this truly outstanding event in his life. And I would like to think Christ is, Christ taking his place brought about some brought about a a real spiritual healing for Barabbas. But we don't know that. And we can't change his response. But we hope that. We hope to see Barabbas in heaven, praising God, um, and just joining up with him there. That's what I hope and look forward to. There'll be plenty of other people there that'll be doing that. But the beautiful thing is, is that we now have this opportunity to contemplate Christ's sacrifice for us. We can allow him to heal us, and we can embrace his ownership in our lives. That that brings us to an ever closer relationship with the Father. I'd like to to close with uh, the verses of a song here. And then maybe if the Miller boys know it, they can come up and sing it. Um, It's an old song that came to my mind as I was studying this, just to think of the cross, just a simple little song. Long, long ago in a faraway place, rough, rugged timbers were raised to the sky. There hung a man suspended in space. And though he was blameless, they left him to die. Just to think of the cross moves me now. The nails in his hand his bleeding brow. To think of the cross moves me not, me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. Instead, I am free. He put an end to my guilt and despair, turned bitter hating to sweet peace and love. Even the men who put him up there were offered forgiveness and life from above. It should have been me. It should have been us. Let's be adoring and contemplating this beautiful gift, this beautiful Savior and Son of the Father that we have to serve. And God bless.